The history. Tell me what you saw. The people. Hey, neighbor. The legends. I bring good news. The actions. If you build it, he will come. The vision and evolution of Southern California's desert cities. Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. From mid-century. We're halfway there. To modern day. I'm building something. These are the stories of how the greater Palm Springs region has become America's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this. iHub Radio presents Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. Welcome back to the Coachella Valley Chronicles. Glad to have you all here. During our last show, I introduced something that my son had told me about, which is a drinking game that he built around my show. And he determined that if there was any dead air, he'd take a shot. So I wanted to add a couple of other things uh, for this week. If I hesitate more than one beat, it means I forgot the guest's name. If I say hi as we're going to break, go ahead and take a shot. The only thing I ask is that everybody listen responsibly. So back at the Chronicles today, we've got our guest, Todd Goldberg. I want to introduce Todd a little shorter than the first time he was here. Todd's a New York Times bestselling author, a professor of creative writing, and a highlight in his life is it all culminated in 1994 by being named Homecoming King. Congratulations and welcome to the Chronicles, Todd. (laughs) It should be noted, not just Homecoming King, but Homecoming King of a minor American university. Let's be real clear here. I only had so, I I carry these little three by five cards. They only have so much space. (laughs) Welcome back, Todd. I'm really glad you're here. Happy to be back. Any time that I can spend with you while your listeners get drunk is uh, is time well spent. <laughs> Again, just listen responsibly. Hey, um, I wanted to get started on, on this conversation with something we kind of dipped into a little bit the first time we talked. And I wanted to read something uh, that you wrote on Twitter a couple of years ago. Oh, God, this should be good. <laughs> uh, this is actually good. I'm 48. But part of me is always six years old being told by a doctor that I'd never read or write above a fourth grade level. That's how profoundly dyslexic I was. I think about that doctor and that day more than I probably should. It wasn't until yesterday that I felt I could bury it for good after 15 books you'd think I would have already. I was functionally illiterate until I was about 10 in special classes until I was 12, thought I was stupid for a lot longer tried to prove it too. I read so much because for so long I couldn't. What a gift. First of all, I I think it's awesome uh, when people like yourself in the public eye share that kind of stuff, Todd, because there's a lot of people that have to deal with it. How did your parents deal with that diagnosis? Um, well, I should note the the reason I had tweeted that on that specific day um, is that I had just become a full professor at the University of California. So I had gone from being functionally illiterate uh, to (laughs) a full professor at the University of California. That's that's absurd. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't happen. Um, You you know, it's an interesting thing. My so my 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 father was not in our life, um, so he didn't play any role in this at all. But my mother, of course, was and um, you know, she, she did not react well to (laughs) to the doctor telling me (laughs) that I would never read nor write above a fourth grade level. And I I can remember that day very specifically. And it's not always great fun remembering 
you know, the days of bringing you shame. But I can smell the doctor's wintergreen gum as mm. though he's standing over my shoulder right now. I can see him. And um, what my mother told him that day was that he was wrong, that we are a family that reads and we are a family that writes and that I would read and that I would write. And so contextually, this was the the mid-1970s. This was about 1976, 1977, somewhere in there. And the understanding of dyslexia was, you know, very, very young um, at the time. Uh, the the methods for curing it, and curing is not the right word, but I guess managing it, um, were just being taught. Fortunately, we lived in Northern California, and we had access to uh, UC Berkeley and to Stanford, where there was a lot of innovative learning going on about how to get kids that had dyslexia uh, to read. But my problems were, were beyond the dyslexia. I also had double vision, um, and uh, I probably had uh, a touch of ADD as well. And so I had a lot of things that needed to be corrected. But the dyslexia part, I got to go to all these special classes at these universities and be worked on by um, people I thought were very old but were probably 22 <laughs> who, who were teaching me all these amazing new ways to deal with dyslexia and to learn to read. And I wish I could remember all of them, but a lot of it had to do with, you know, like rhythm and clapping and, and there's that side of it. And then there was the understanding how letters and sounds work with one another so that I could predict when things were coming together, things, things of that nature. And again, this is all so long ago, it's difficult for me to remember it. But my mom, um, for the faults that she had, which were many, um, one that she did not have was wanting her children to be uneducated. <laughs> and yeah. she did everything in her power to get me to be able to read and to write. And though there are a few reviews on Goodreads or Amazon that might suggest otherwise, <laughs> I have been able to read and write above a fourth grade level. Thank God. <laughs> Congratulations. I've actually read some of this stuff. <laughs> How did you handle it? I, I mean, you you mentioned that you remember the the appointment, you remember the smell of the wintergreen gum, but what, what it, as a child from that point on, did it, did you get this kind of conviction that you were going to win or did it start moving you on to other interests? No, no, for many years, um, I did not think I would win anything. Um, hmm. And, you know, I was in classes with children with, with profound disabilities because they didn't know where to put me. Um, so, you know, I was in, in classes with, with kids with, um, you know, that, that had Down syndrome and, and children that had, um, you know, profound physical ailments. And, you know, I didn't belong in those courses and, and in those groups, but that's where they put me because they didn't know what to do. And so I felt a lot of shame and a lot of anger about those things because I knew that I was misplaced. And so for a long time, you know, I, re I rebelled against those things. And that was that was challenging. And it, it really wasn't until I was, um, you know, in high school, probably, that I began to to get the confidence in myself that I probably should have had the entire time that I was smart and that I was um, articulate and that I could speak and read and, and do all these things. So it, it really wasn't until I was probably 15 years old that my outlook on who I was as a person really began to change. Hmm. Were you popular as a child? 
Um, in high school, yeah, uh, but not prior to that, no. Um, it, it took leaving Northern California um, to to sort of shake off that past. Because, you, you know, if you're a kid who comes to school essentially in in the short bus, not that I rode the bus, but that was the <laughs> that's where all of my classmates did. You don't you don't so easily wash that off of you and suddenly rise up in, in the ranks of popularity. So I was I was still the kid that they had gone to kindergarten with even when I was, you know, thirteen years old. But when I moved to Palm Springs or when my when my mom moved us here, um, you know, I, I was able to leave a lot of that regret and shame and all of that behind me. And um and so that was really quite a bonus for me to to be able to restart my life a little bit. Yeah. I consider myself a socially stunted extrovert. It basically means I don't mind standing in, around people. I just don't want them to talk to me. <laughs> um, are you in, just an extrovert extrovert? Yes. I, <laughs> I feed off of, uh, <laughs> off of other people. I love to be around other people, and I love to talk to people. My poor wife uh, is, the, is the exact opposite. And so, you know, we'll be in line at Trader Joe's and I'll engage the person beside me in conversation. And my wife will look like she wants to crawl into those those <laughs> tins of popcorn <laughs> while, while I'm learning the life story of the person beside me. But it's also one of those things, I think, where um, and this is probably because I am a, a, a teacher, is that people uh, have a, a feeling that they can open up to me and speak to me. And it, it's always been the case. I'll go somewhere and someone will just begin to tell me their story. And that's helpful as a fiction writer because I get to hear all sorts of interesting things. Um, but, you know, the the fact, too, is that, you know, the the being in the public is tiring and, and challenging because I don't want to be happy-go-lucky and all of those things every single day. But when I am in public, either for my job at UCR or for my job as a, as a writer, um, you know, there is a, a a public desire that I be the thing that they want me to be, and so I try to to do that. That doesn't mean every single day I'm in the mood for it. <laughs> <laughs> a little later, I want to actually get into that a little bit more because I, I read an interview where you talked about some. You're you're a method writer, um, and you kind of go through that and have to come out of that a little bit. So I want to get into that yeah. later. But before we finish up the first segment here, and we get out in Northern California, I wanted to throw a couple of things in here for my lightning round. Um, your favorite Oakland athletic memory? Oh gosh, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, actually, my my favorite is sort of a disappointing thing. I had gone to the playoffs in 1981, I believe it was the strike shortened year, mm -hmm. and I went to the bathroom right at the moment the A's scored their only runs of the playoff <laughs> when Dave McKay hit a home run. And so I have an enduring memory of being in the giant men's room uh, in the bowels of Oakland Alameda Coliseum and hearing everyone scream and running out into the concourse, doing up my pants at age 10, <laughs> saying, what happened? What happened? <laughs> and that's that's maybe emblematic of, of anyone who's been a fan of the Oakland A's. They they sort of just miss a lot. <laughs> yeah, I actually have one of those stories. I was uh, this was earlier than that, and I was a huge Mickey Mantle fan, and I'd always want to see Mickey Mantle play. And one time in his final year of his career, he came out to Oakland, and of course he was always injured. So on the day that I went, he couldn't play. Uh, disappointing until my uh, neighbor handed me their binoculars, and I looked into the dugout 
just as he was pulling his pants down and wiping out of the dirt, uh, wiping all the dirt off of his pants and his sliding pads. And so that's my last vision of Mickey Mantle. Well, you know what the, the, the cool thing, though, is growing up in the Bay Area is that you'd see the A's, you know, because yes. most of them lived in Walnut Creek. You know, they lived in the East Bay. And so you'd go to the Safeway in Walnut Creek and you'd see Dave Revering or Vita yeah. Blue or, um, you know, Wayne Gross or whomever buying their groceries. And it was like, oh, right, they live here and they shop here. They're 26 years old. Where else are they going to go? <laughs> I got to take a uh, fantasy batting practice one time at the old AT&T and uh, bite a blue pitched oh gosh and he threw a ball uh, probably 60 miles an hour but still scared me and i hit it off the left field fence and i stood there and i looked at it and two seconds later a ball came whizzing past the back of my head i looked out at the mound and vita blue said don't look at the ball after you hit it <laughs> yeah don't <laughs> do not look at the ball and then tito fuente started hitting me ground balls and my life was complete <laughs> When we return, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the new bestseller from Todd Goldberg, The Low Desert. Let's just call it what it is. Coachella Valley Chronicles continues on iHub Radio. You are the story. Here's Randy Florence. Welcome back to the Chronicles. We're here with my guest, New York Times bestselling author and former homecoming king, Todd Goldberg. Todd, how many professions do you have? Oh, gosh. Let's see here. Uh, Well, there's the modeling. Uh, (laughs) How many do you get paid for? There's the Navy SEALs. Um, let's see. So uh, there's the writing. Um, there's the being a professor. Uh, there's the the professional podcaster, which is a thing. I get paid to, to make a podcast. Um, so that's three. Um, is there anything else I get paid to do that's not within those three things? I think that's, I think all those things essentially then encompass everything else that causes people to give me money <laughs> legally at least yeah how um how, you you started off as a writer but was there ever any chance you were going to be anything other than a writer as a main profession oh sure you know i um i had jobs before i became a professional writer i worked in advertising for a few years um working in the uh, infomercial business um and i had thought that i might like to work in public relations or advertising as a as a job um but then i found out very early on in that career a couple key things the first being i didn't like to wake up and go somewhere and i didn't like to take orders from anybody and those are two things that as as mitigating details of a career didn't seem to line up with working in in public relations or advertising um 
so that was, you know, I had entertained those things. I, I thought maybe I'd like to be a lawyer uh, for a time because I like to argue and I like <laughs> to be right. But I figured if I was a lawyer, I'd only I'd get to argue a lot, but I'd only be found right about 50 percent of the time. And that wasn't a high enough percentage for me. Um, so, you know, nothing after about age 25, nothing really um, appealed to me other than what it is I wanted to do. And, I, you know, I once I had gone to college and and found out essentially that compared to my peers, I was a better writer. That gave me a lot of um, a lot of uh, it gave me a better sense of my talent, if that mm. makes sense. It does. Do you remember the first thing that you wrote with the intention of writing something? I don't, um, but I was always writing little things, and and we I think we talked about this uh, earlier in uh, the previous show. You know, I was making up narratives before I could write. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd have a bunch of toys and I'd write their stories in my head. Um, but I remember the first thing I got published when I decided I was going to be a professional writer, which was a short story called um, "Love Somebody," that was in a magazine called the Timber Creek Review. Uh, I sold it, and sold is is a, a bit of a, a misnomer. I think they gave me five <laughs> bucks, um, and it was the magazine. And again, magazine is sort of the wrong word. It was it, it arrived printed and looked like it had been printed on old newspapers, and they had just you know bleached out one side and put my words in it. <laughs> How I still old are you, Todd? In my closet, this you know this copy of this magazine, um, but it was a Timber Creek Review. They paid me five bucks for this little short story. I didn't think anyone was ever going to see it. And then uh, inexplicably, it got nominated for the Pushcart Prize, which is um, a significant a award of notoriety in the short fiction world. There's no money involved, um, <laughs> but notoriety. But, but to but to 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 receive a nomination um, is is significant. And then I received special mention for that award for this little short story. All of which, you know, I didn't think anyone would ever read and no one would appreciate. And then lo and behold, there it was, you know, in this book. So that gave me a lot of confidence that what I was doing um, had possibility to it. What was that moment like when you saw it in print for the first time? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. Gosh, I, I remember uh, Wendy, my wife, and I were living in Sherman Oaks at the time. Uh, she was not yet my wife. And uh, it came in the mail in a um in a yellow envelope i ripped it open and there it was it had a a pink cover and, and i might be wrong about the cover because i'm colorblind so it could have been blue um but it has, <laughs> it's it whatever had, wendy told you it was <laughs> right it had it had a pink cover of a guy standing next to a creek and 23 pages in was my short story and they had spelled my name wrong and i was thrilled <laughs> <laughs> that is a fantastic story. I can almost imagine just the goosebumps when you saw it the first time. Oh, it, it was great. I mean, it wasn't the first time I'd seen my name in print because, you know, I had written stuff for the college newspaper and magazine and things like that. But this is the first piece of fiction that I had seen in the outside world. Like, you know, the citizen world was going to see it. Mm. And I was so foolish because I thought, like, well, it's in this magazine. It will be in stores. And, and you know, this magazine had, like, a <laughs> subscription base of, like, 130 people and i'd go into barnes and noble and be like do you have the timber creek review and and you know the kid behind the counter would be like what are you talking about did you get any letters from readers no 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 never it was worth a shot hey last uh, lightning round thing before we go to break your last meal what is it 
Uh, gosh, I would probably have a corned beef sandwich on challah bread with a side of potato salad. Fantastic. I'll join you for that as long as it doesn't have to be my last meal. We'll be back uh, after the break and we'll talk a little bit further with my guest Todd Goldberg here on the Coachella Valley Chronicles on iHub Radio. From the Gene Autry Trail to the Empire Polo Grounds. Have you seen it? Like desert sands through an hourglass. With great power comes great responsibility. These are the Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence on iHub Radio. Cool. Here's Randy. Back to the Chronicles with my guest Todd Goldberg. Todd, I want to talk a little bit about the low desert. And I just want to say probably for the 400th time to you, an amazing book. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you so you. much for it. I've actually read it three times all the way through, and every single time I'm catching something completely different. Um, talk to us a little bit, if you would. I'm interested about the, the process, the, the life cycle of this book. How, how did it come together, and how long did it take, um, and did it end up being exactly what you wanted it to be? You know, it's a strange little book because some of the stories that are in that book are very, very old. And some I finished writing on April 28th of 2020, <laughs> um, wow. which was the due date for the book, um, <laughs> for the final edits to be in. I the, assume you already had been paid. Yeah, yeah. I'd already been paid. <laughs> uh, the oldest story in the book is uh, the story, The Last Good Man, which I actually wrote in 1996. And... It was published in 1996 or 1997, and then I rewrote it for my short story collection, Simplify. It didn't end up making that story collection, so I put it to one side. I rewrote it again for my short story collection, Other Resort Cities, in 2009. It ended up in that version. I rewrote it again in 2017 (laughs) for an anthology of Christmas stories that Soho Press put out, and I titled it then uh, Blue Memories Start Calling. Um, And then I rewrote it one final time, Randy, this is it, for for The Low Desert and and called it The Last Good Man. Um, So that's the oldest story that's in the book. The newest story that's in the book is a story called Ragtown that was the last thing that I that I wrote um, in April of 2020. Um, so the life cycle, you know, is it's it's a 25 years. Mm. It's a, it's a really long time for um, a book to gestate. Um, but I, you know, I think I mentioned this previously. It, you know, I had I had written three books in a row that were quite long: uh, Gangster Land, The House of Secrets, and Gangster Nation. We're each over 450 pages long, and I was I was pretty burnt out, to be perfectly honest. And the notion of going back and writing another 450-page book right away 
uh, did not thrill me. Mm. And it, and like my back was saying things to me like, Todd, no, <laughs> you don't sit for a year and a half writing 450 pages. <laughs> so I knew that I didn't want to conclude the Gangsterland trilogy just yet. Um, I've been working on a TV show version of uh, the books also with some great folks I can't tell you about, but that if you read the acknowledgments page, you can see their names. <laughs> um, and um, I knew also that we needed some more stories for the television show. And so I said, all right, I'd really like to write these short stories. I'd like to expand the universe and, and really examine some of these side characters that I might have killed off or only mentioned in passing and, and really take a look at their lives. And fortunately, I have a, a wonderful relationship with the, um, with the with my publisher, Counterpoint Press, and with my editor, Dan Smetanka, where I can go to them and say, hey, look, I know you're expecting another novel from me, but this is what I want to do, and, and this is why I think we should do it, and have them say, absolutely. you know. And, and this is a, a very cool thing, and, and not every writer gets it, is that the relationship that I have with my publisher and specifically with my editor, they tell me, look, take big chances, you know, don't be scared to screw up. Don't be scared that you're going to write a story that we can't put in front of the public that, and they'll want to read it. We're not going to let you fail. And so they've let me do wild and crazy things. And the public has responded really, really well to those things. And so it's a, it's a great trustworthy relationship that we have and not one that you really see that often in big American publishing anymore. Yeah, that that's interesting. Also, um, that relationship with your publisher, who's given you that amount of trust and said, take a chance. Um, has that impacted the way you teach uh, your students? Um, a little bit. You know, I think it probably impacts the way I edit them. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm reading my students work, it's never so that they're the, the best student in the workshop. It's always so that they can go out and sell their book. And, and that's the thing that distinguishes the MFA program that I founded and that I direct from other MFA programs. It's, it's not a, an entirely esoteric pursuit. My job is to get you to where you want to go with your career. Mm -hmm. And my presumption is your career is you want to be a professional writer, a novelist, a memoirist, a screenwriter, whatever. And so I'm going to critique you and teach you and hire the professors and the guest faculty to get you where you want to go professionally. I don't want you to be the star of the workshop. I don't want you to be the best student. You being a great student means absolutely nothing to someone going into Barnes & Noble to buy your book. Right. I want you to go out there and, and write something that can sell. And so I teach toward that. And have you had students who have been published and become professional oh. writers? Of course. <laughs> Randy, that was of a course. Door, that was a door opening, Todd. <laughs> Anybody you care to mention? How many do you want listed? Here's what we'll do. I'll, I will tell you the person that all of you here in the Coachella Valley can go see at a moment's notice, and that is my dear friend and colleague, Maggie Downs. So Maggie was a, uh, a student in the MFA program, and then her book, Braver Than You Think, she wrote that in the MFA program. It came out last year, and then just this year, it became a, uh, a bestseller. Um, but she is a graduate of the program, and uh, of course, we, we co-hosted Open Book on KCOD for uh, many years together before the pandemic as well, and she works at UCR also. But, I mean, uh, there are literally a hundred published writers that have come through the program. Good. I want to read something real quickly here, going back to what you said, that you're a method writer. You said, I need to replicate a character's language and keep it in my head, otherwise the character doesn't feel human. I'm fascinated by what gets people to kill. 
People make irrational decisions when they feel pressed against the wall. In my books, there's always a ripple, a ramification, a consequence. How does, just previous to that in the interview, Wendy said she sometimes asks, who am I talking to right now? The hitman, the rabbi, or the my husband? <laughs> How does she handle that? Does she just give you a wide swath of space? Uh, often, yeah. You know, when I'm when I'm in it, I, I think um, she understands that. You know, if I'm disconnected from reality, it's not because I don't care. It's because I'm trying to keep the story in my head at that moment. Yeah. I'm trying to keep the narrative right. But you can't have good and lasting interpersonal relationships with the people that you love if you live inside of a dream world the entire time. <laughs> True. Um, and so, you know, if we're at uh, if we're at the habit getting a cheeseburger, and <laughs> and she's with the hitman. You know, that's not a great time. It's not a great time for her. It's not a great time for me. And it's not a great time for the person in front of us. And, um, that makes perfect sense. And so, you know, sometimes I have to be reminded like, hey, you're in public. You're not at your desk anymore. You need to be a normal human being. We need to talk about getting the dog to the vet or, um, you know, about the taxes or about, you know, what movie we're going to see or all those things. Because I, I can have a, a sort of single-minded approach when I'm really close to being done with something where it overtakes all of my thinking. And, you know, it's it's a level of obsessiveness, I think, that a lot of artists get when they're in that zone, you know? And, and I'm talking about everyone from Michael Jordan to Da Vinci. And so I'm somewhere in the middle, right? I'm right, <laughs> I'm right between Michael Jordan and Da Vinci. That's exactly where I would have put you. Yeah, <laughs> that tall and that talented. Um, where... Like you don't want to break the magic, right? Mm -hmm. No, like you don't want to go to sleep because you're afraid the magic won't be there in the morning, and um, and so my wife and my family, they all understand when I get like that, but also they understand because they're writers. Also, Wendy is a writer as well, and so when she's in the zone when she's working on something. I know not to go and say, hey, I need to talk to you about where the nail clippers are. <laughs> like, you know, like these are, these are, and also I should know where the nail, nail clippers are. You, I'm the one who uses them. Yeah, you I, might, I them you might the get them. You might not <laughs> right. like the way they're delivered. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, not necessarily from the low desert, but throughout your career as a writer, what's the story that was the hardest for you to finish? Oh, gosh, um, all of them. And I, I don't mean that as a joke. I mean, it never gets easier. Um, I, I always think that I will start something and it will be easier because I've done it before. But that's not the case. I'm working on something right now and it's impossible, Randy. It's impossible. Mm. And it's just a little short story for a, a book that I told someone I would write. And I've been slaving over it for three weeks and I can't figure out how it ends and I just keep writing it and writing it and writing it. it just keeps getting longer and longer and less interesting and that's often how it is and I you know I, I wish I could say that um, there's things that I can dash off and, and it's easy but as soon as I open up my computer and I see that blank white space there's a little bit of anxiety right. every single time it never goes away you think that's pretty common among most writers it, it is, particularly if they're texting me from right before their therapy appointments. <laughs> that Yeah. I mean, look, just in my own family, last night I was talking to my brother Lee, and he texted me to say, I just realized all of my talent is gone and that I'm a fraud, just FYI. And, and, and that's like, not okay. the first time he sent you that text, is it? 
No, I get it about <laughs> once a week when he's working on something. Right. Um, and I don't know if he's looking for me to agree with him or to tell him the opposite. So typically I just say, okay. <laughs> Talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, great. One less person I got to worry about. <laughs> Is there a story that you just can't write that's sitting there? Um, there's stories I'm not prepared to write. You know, the, you know, there's... It took me a long time to write uh, Gangsterland because I was not prepared to write it, for instance. So, you know, Gangsterland is about a, a hitman who pretends to be a rabbi. But in order to pretend to be a rabbi, he has to, in effect, become a rabbi. Um, if you're going to do that job, in order to do it convincingly, you have to have read the books. Um, you have to know the faith, all that stuff. And I didn't feel prepared to write that because I, you know, I I'm not a great Jew. Um, you know, I'm a Neil Diamond, Beastie Boys, <laughs> mayonnaise on white bread Jew. And that's not that's not a rabbi. Right. Um, and so before I wrote Gangsterland, I had to read all the books. You know, I, I had to do all the studying. I had to know what my character had to know before I could even attempt to write that book. And I for a long time, I felt that way about uh, this idea I have about writing about the Salton Sea in the 1960s and about organized crime in the 1960s, at the Salton Sea, which shows up in the low desert. And essentially, me writing the title story of The Low Desert was a test run to see if I could write that book or write that TV show. And I finally feel like my skills and my ambition and my knowledge have all caught up with each other. Mm, that's great. We're getting ready to go to break here, so uh, lightning round real quick. You and Wendy, date night. Is it just habit? <laughs> uh, it's a lot of Hulu and a lot of that good Chinese restaurant in India. Awesome. <laughs> And I already know what the answer is going to be to this. Worst Oakland Athletics memory. Oh, God. Backdoor slider, Kirk Gibson. <sighs> Still takes my breath away and makes me nauseous to this God, day. Yeah. Mike Davis turning and watching it sail over the fence. So. <laughs> Good thing we're going to a break right now so I can wipe the tears. We'll be back after this break. Finish up with our guest Todd Goldberg on Coachella Valley Chronicles, iHub Radio. And the where. This is Coachella Valley Chronicles with Randy Florence. The 411 on the events, the personalities, and the history that have built an oasis in the desert. Here's Randy. Welcome back with my guest, Todd Goldberg. Todd, is there a character that you have written about that is most like you? Uh, sure. You know, I, I suspect any of them that are very, very tall... <laughs> Very, very handsome and uh, and reliable with the ladies. Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, and, and this might frighten folks uh, when they run into me at Target, 
probably Sal Cupertine slash the Rabbi David Cohen um, is probably closest to me. Well, do me a favor, because that's really where I wanted to go with the final segment here for, for the for the guests of this or the uh, listeners of the show. Tell us a little bit about Rabbi David Cohen. He he pops up again in the story Mazel in Low Store, a uh, Low Desert, but I know that wasn't the first time that was published. Introduce us to Rabbi David Cohen. Well, Rabbi David Cohen is a Chicago hitman named Sal Cupertine, who in Gangsterland uh, kills four undercover FBI agents and is essentially sold to an organized crime family in Las Vegas who operates a temple in Las Vegas in Summerlin, Temple Beth Israel. And they install him after much plastic surgery as the junior rabbi, Rabbi David Cohen. And he oversees a money, body, and uh, and crime laundering service, essentially, <laughs> out of Temple Beth Israel in, in Summerlin. All the while, pining for his wife and child who are back in Chicago and doing a series of murders and uh, generally trying to live his life so that he can he can double cross everyone who screwed him over, find his wife and child and escape back into a life that he wants. Uh, but that becomes increasingly more difficult in gangster land and gangster nation. And then in the stories in the low desert, you see it as well. And then in the concluding book in the series, which I should really start writing, um, you'll, you'll see that in spades. You've already received the check. Uh, some of it. Yeah. So I, I do in fact need to start writing that book. Uh, it's a lot, I'm suddenly feeling a lot of anxiety about this, Randy. <laughs> well, let's just sit here silently for about 30 seconds and think yeah, about that. God. Um, the, one of the things that I think I picked up also with Rabbi David Cohen is that there seem to be times in his story where he also recognizes that there's people look at him thinking he's a real rabbi. And he feels some responsibility towards, um, like when he's meeting with the children, he, he feels right. some responsibility towards being an actual real rabbi. Right. Um, how does he handle those two differences in his lives? Well, it turns out, you know, being um, a an organized crime figure and a and a religious figure aren't all that different. You know, <laughs> people believe what they want to believe that you have to say to them, uh, because in in all cases they they fear something worse is coming if they don't believe you. In a crime family, they they fear you're going to kill them. In in a religious organization, they fear you're going to put a bad word in with God, mm. and so there's a lot of existential suffering. <laughs> but for sure, you know, Rabbi David Cohn in his role as a fake rabbi is a rabbi and a good one, and people come to depend on him, and he comes to care about the people who he is overseeing, particularly the the, the children. Yes. Um, but there's also moments where he sees someone disrespecting the faith. And the hitman shows up. There's a there's a scene in Gangster Nation where a, a sort of a scumbag guy comes in and who's been bad to his kids. So that, that's that's a mark against him. But he comes in and he's got a, a barbed wire tattoo on his arm. And Rabbi David Cohen says to him, you ever walk in here again with that tattoo and I'll cut it off myself. And uh, I remember very vividly writing that because at the at 
I had just seen a photo of this this con woman named Anna March. This is a, a somewhat famous story. Uh, there's a con woman in Los Angeles named Anna March who conned the literary establishment into believing she was something she wasn't. Um, and she was writing a book, she said, about Anne Frank. And she got tattooed on her arm what was supposed to be Anne Frank's camp number on her arm. And she's not Jewish. Right. And I, I knew she was a con woman from the start. And I was like, if I ever see that woman, I'm going to cut that tattoo my, off myself. And then I was like, oh, hey, instead of doing that, I should just put that in a book. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the other things that, that I understand from reading about Rabbi David Cohen and reading in some interviews is that you really had to learn about Judaism to understand that character and write about him. Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I, um, as I said before the break, uh, you know, I, I didn't even get bar mitzvah. So mm-hmm. my knowledge of the faith was was quite low. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm more of a cultural Jew than a religious Jew, and that that is still true. Um, but I went and I read the Talmud, and I, I read great parts of uh, the Midrash and the Torah, uh, and I have all these books of, you know, Jewish eschatology and thought and philosophy because I wanted to know what Rabbi David Cohn would know when he knows it. So when a scene happens, I would be up to date on his knowledge and what he might quote back to someone. But of course, he intentionally gets things wrong and he doesn't always know the right answer. And so if something fails him, he'll just quote Bruce Springsteen or Neil Young. And people seem to think that, <laughs> oh, that, that sounds about right. Like that, that seems like good advice. You know, <laughs> you know, if you quote Bruce Springsteen and say, is a dream a lie if it doesn't come true? Or is it something worse? But if you say, as the Talmud says, is a dream a lie if it doesn't come true? It's like, what? That sounds like the Talmud. That's possible. That's awesome. I'm never going to look at Bruce Springsteen's stuff the same. <laughs> but, you know, that's, I think that's the the value of, of something that has meaning to you. And those songs have meaning to people and therefore it becomes a, a different kind of spirituality. And so it's easy to pretend these things in, in this book. Yeah. Well, Todd, once again, I'm left here with about 45 cards of stuff that I want to know. Maybe nobody else does, but I plan on asking you again in the future. But as we <laughs> finish up here, what do we have to look forward to from you, Todd? Well, I'm going to, at some point soon, stop doing interviews and conversations <laughs> about myself for a little while and get back to writing. I haven't, I haven't really written anything in about three months because I've been promoting The Low Desert, which all of you should go out and buy. Um, so I will get back to work on writing the third Gangsterland book. Uh, I am working on the, the TV show version of it as well right now. So there's a lot of stuff that's in the hopper. Um, I've got a great espresso machine. I'm fully vaccinated. I'm ready to go. <laughs> that's awesome. Todd, thank you so much. This is as much fun as I have had in an awful long time. And I know the next time is going to be the next most fun I've had in a long time. Thank you all for being here today on the Coachella Valley Chronicles with my guest Todd Goldberg. I'm Randy Florence on iHub Radio.